You are listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. For more information about our church, please visit www.hopechurchipswich.net. Uh, it's a blessing to be able to uh, open the Word of God together. Uh, it's a massive privilege to me. We are between uh, series at the moment. We have recently finished a series in a book called, or a letter called First Corinthians. Uh, we are today celebrating baptisms. I'm going to be speaking a very simple message today, but it is uh, in a hidden sort of story in the Old Testament, in the book of Two Kings. So I'm just going to tell you a little bit about where we are in the story of Israel. Israel's history at this time, as you can maybe tell by the the name of the book, uh, Israel are no longer led by prophets. Uh, They're now led by kings. And so these books are helping us understand and know the history of, of the kingdoms of Israel through the, the monarchy, monarchies that reign. If you remember First Samuel last year, Israel was led by, by prophets, but uh, the people said, we want to be like other nations, we want to have a king. And so God uh, gave them what they asked for, and their first king, uh, Samuel the prophet, brought in under God's uh, anointing, God's uh, direction was Saul, and uh, Saul did fairly well for a little while, uh, not very long. And then the next king, David, came in, and he was really the pinnacle of the kings of Israel. And from then on, it just declines and goes worse and worse and worse. The kings turn away from God; they go their own way. They do what uh, they feel like. They turn things their own way, and uh, through. The history of uh, First and Second Kings, there are about 40 different kings, and only eight of them are said to have been godly, successful kings. It's quite tragic, really. Through flawed kingship, through flawed leadership, the nation splits into two kingdoms, Judah in the south and Israel in the north, and there's a rivalry between them. But also in First and Second Kings, we see the role of the prophets, The prophets are still doing the same thing that they always do, and they play a vital role in these books. God raises up prophets to speak on his behalf. That's what prophets do. They speak on God's behalf. They would hold to the promises of God and remind the kings of the promises of God and remind the kings of the calling of Israel. Don't forget, God has called Israel to be a light to the nations. And they would call the kings and Israel to obey the commands of God, which sadly they would not do. They failed to do, so the prophets were often calling Israel to repent. Turn back, turn back to God, turn back. The two most prominent uh, prophets, particularly in these books, are Elijah and his disciple Elisha. And these men spoke powerfully for God. But they also moved powerfully for God. They, they saw incredible signs and wonders and miracles under God's anointing. That's just a bit of the background. The story we read today is in 2 Kings chapter 5. And in this story, the prophet is Elisha. And the king is not named. But that's where we are. This man, Elisha, is a man who moves in power in this story. Let's look at chapter 5, verse 1 to 15. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man, with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. 
Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord. Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he's seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he said to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me now, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of his Lord, God, and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it's a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all of his company. And he came and stood before him and said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So, Accept now a present from your servant. Father, we thank you for your presence with us. We thank you you are Emmanuel, God with us. We thank you for your love that we've already encountered this morning, the truths that we've sung which are life-changing to us. Thank you for your grace upon us, your offer of life in abundance. We just ask you now to, by your spirit, open our hearts Open our eyes and ears to what you would want to say, to the very depths of who we are. I do pray for your Spirit's power, for the Word to do what you promised it would do, to bear fruit. Pray for freedom to speak, and uh, just pray bless us in this time to receive what you say as true. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, strange story, quite an incredible story though. We start off the chapter with this impressive man, this impressive warrior. He's a mighty man. He's a general, a commander of the army of the king, and he's held in high regard. He has an excellent reputation, and he has had success. He's called a mighty man of valor. Even his name means pleasantness. 
He's the kind of guy you would want to follow into battle. The kind of guy you would want on your rugby team. And perhaps definitely not on the opposing rugby team. I don't know if you played school sports. I remember when I was on my... I was about 13, 14, playing rugby for my school. And it just seemed every time we played another school, there was one kid who was about six foot two and had a massive beard. And you're going, oh, I don't think he should be playing. Perhaps Naaman was a bit like that. Perhaps Naaman was the kind of guy that if you stood alongside him, you felt six foot two. You felt, let's take on this battle with Naaman here. But he wasn't just a big bloke. He was a skilled leader. A successful commander of the army. The army of the king. If you've ever watched Gladiator, Naaman was Maximus. He was a skilled leader. A man who was on the up. He had friends in high places and had everything going for him. He had command and authority. And God had given him, as general of the Syrian army, victory in significant battle. Now, just, just a quick aside here. It's not what we're preaching on today. This is just for free. It, it's interesting how the Bible's very clear that God is the one who gives victory or denies victory. Even to people groups who ignore him. Even to people groups who don't acknowledge him as God, he is the one who's in control. He is the one who gives victory or denies victory. Amen? And so we have Naaman, this impressive man, destined for special things. Destined, perhaps, to go down in history as a war hero, as a leader of leaders, as a man who shaped nations. And yet, mighty Naaman has a serious problem. He has a disease called leprosy. It's undeniable. It's not a sort of disease that goes by without making itself clear. Disease which will cause him to slowly deteriorate. A disease which takes away sensitivity to the fact that he will get injured and he will damage himself without even knowing it. And a disease which makes him grow weaker and weaker. And a disease which also causes loss of sight. So you've got this man who who stands full of strength, who is losing his strength. A man who people look to for leadership, knowing, not even recognizing when parts of him are being damaged. A man who people look to him for vision, who is losing his eyesight. And perhaps it wasn't unusual for him, even though he was a successful man, at the end of a battle day or the end of a, a long day with his, with his soldiers to be laughing after a drink or something, to go back home and just catch a glimpse of his skin and think, yeah. See, no matter what he does, no matter how loved and admired and successful he knows he is, he also knows I'm broken. There's something seriously wrong. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You go throughout your day, you get on with life, maybe you're doing very well, maybe you're succeeding in areas and you're thought very highly of, but when you're left to yourself, or when you look at yourself in the mirror, you think, something's not right. And we all know something of this. I mean, the self-help, self-improvement 
bad. It's not a multi-billion pound industry for no reason. People are looking for help, for answers. I've heard many people say, I don't like being left to my own thoughts. I don't like being left alone to my thoughts. They prefer to have the TV on or keep busy or be with people at all times. If I'm left to myself, I get anxious, I get depressed, I get panic attacks. And it seems to be more and more prevalent. But the thing is, whether people are actively seeking help or simply throw themselves into distractions like entertainment and technology and and things just to keep them occupied, there is a deep sense of lack and failure that runs to the very heart of us like a disease. And we don't know how Naaman contracted leprosy. It may have been due to a silly decision that he made, something he thought, I can handle this, I can handle this. Maybe flew too close to the sun, as it were, and, and... Maybe it was something he knew wasn't a good idea. People have maybe said, don't do that. Don't go near there. Maybe he thought, I'll do what I want, thanks. And now he finds, why did I ever do that? It's filled with regret. Every time he he undresses at the end of the day and he's reminded. Perhaps that's the sort of regret you have. You feel... If you look at yourself honestly and the way you behave or things you've done that you wish you didn't do, you wish you could change, you you look at yourself and you think, if only I hadn't done that. I should be better than this. I thought I was better than this. Perhaps, Perhaps, though, Naaman knows he's diseased and he's one of these people who just says, I know I'm diseased, but nobody's perfect. What can I do about it? It's just who I am. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to indulge in life and live life to the full while I can. Perhaps that's been something of your experience. The thing, I know I'm not perfect, but what can I do about it? Maybe, though, this wasn't Naaman's thought process at all. Perhaps he was quite a confident man, maybe quite arrogant, maybe the kind of guy who says, you know what, I'm a self-made man. I'm a self-made man. That's quite an interesting phrase, isn't it? It's literally impossible. A self-made man. But what that means is I got this far on my own. I got this far. I've done all of this. I've got where I am today because of who I am. Perhaps you, you know that, that you're the sort of person, I work hard. I've got to where I am today because of my hard work, because of who I am. Well, actually, we read in the story, his greatest victory the thing he gets the accolades for was God's work. It wasn't because of who I am. It was because of the great I am. God's grace gave the Assyrians into his hands. The truth is, Naaman, you are a diseased man. And death is creeping in. And it's serious. You are falling apart. You don't even feel pain the way you should. You're growing weaker in your clarity of vision. And therefore, your understanding of the way God's designed life around you is getting cloudier all the time. Whether he acknowledges it or not, Naaman is a man with a disease that is destroying him. And the unavoidable truth is that that is the story of every man and woman who's ever lived. Our story is one of brokenness. 
You don't have to look far. Just pick up today's paper. Have a look in the paper. You will see brokenness all around. We know terrible stories of things happening in Ipswich that we've seen in the last years. Very sad. But if we're honest, as I've said already, we know it's not just broken out there. It's broken in here. The thing is, it's not just the stories in today's paper. It's our story from the beginning. The history of mankind is that we inherited a disease. A disease that we're born into. Because our forefather, Adam, turned away from God. Rejected God. Tried to replace God. And ever since then, mankind has followed suit. I'll do things my way. I will be God in my life. We're born into Adam. We're born into him. We can't help it. It's our bloodline. We've a deadly disease. Like leprosy, it causes us to lose feeling to the extent where parts of us are ruined and we don't even know it. It weakens us, makes us lose our eyesight, our understanding of the way God designed things. And it's deadly. It's our biggest problem is that we were born broken. And there's nothing we can do about it. It's a cheery message today, isn't it? Nothing we can do about it. However much we try, it's futile. And we do try. We, we go to the self-help seminars. We read the books. We go on YouTube. We, we try and, and find ways out of this brokenness. Perhaps you, you go to church to try and find your way out of, the, of the, the lacking. And you think, it's not working. This religion, I'm trying to do what they tell me to do. It's not working. What about... People who just work, 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 and they try to gain as much as they can in their life. I'm trying, I'm trying. What about people who try and get love in, in any way they can? And all of these things, they're like, they have a bungee cord on our back. I'm trying to escape this brokenness, but I get so far and I just get plunged back in. It doesn't work. Even the rich and famous can't escape it. Jim Carrey famously said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed so they can see that it's not the answer. We can try and get away from our brokenness, but we can't do it on our own. Why? Because it's our family tree. You can't change your family tree. You're born into Adam. You're born into a diseased family tree. There's a deep longing and a hole in the human heart. Well, let's not stay in this area. Let's move on because what happens next is incredible. It is life-changing. It's life-giving. But where does Naaman's hope come from? Because we saw, we read in the story, he he gets baptized, as we're going to see today, as it were, as a picture of baptism, and he comes out clean. Where does his hope come from that there could be difference? Well, it comes from a little girl. A little girl says there is a way. There is a way. A young evangelist. If only you knew, she's thinking. If only he was with the, 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 the prophet. If only you knew, you, you could get healed. And get this, this little girl was a captive. She'd been caught in battle and taken away. She's a, she's a slave. She could have thought, I hope you die. I'm glad you've got leprosy. Can't wait to see bits falling off of you. But she didn't. She had mercy. Now, Christians, we've got to think here. What what a great example. 
She didn't disqualify herself. Well, I'm just a little child. What can I say? She didn't also think, well, I'm just a girl, which in those days I haven't got a position to talk, especially to the king's commander, the king's household, even though she lived there. And perhaps also this, this sense of indignation of, of why should I? Why should I tell them about the hope? They don't deserve it. The beautiful thing for us is that as Christians, we know what we've received, we don't deserve. So we want to pass that on. So she's a great example to us. Don't count yourself out if you think, but I'm just small. I'm just nothing. Or don't start with that bitterness of, they. I don't really care where they end up. All she does is point them in the right direction. She doesn't go through hours and hours of theology. She's just saying that there is a way. We can be like this, Christians. We can say there is a way. And this is where we see the beginning of Naaman's repentance. Because Naaman goes to his, his king and he says, look, this girl said this. And the king says, go, go for it. And the, the word in the Bible, repentance, just means turning. It's like making a U-turn. I was going this way, now I'm going this way. Repentance just means to turn. And from this point, Naaman begins to turn. Begins to make a turn. Begins to say, I need to acknowledge my need. I need to go after this. I'm just going to look into it. I'm just going to see, is there anything in this? Now, it's interesting that eventually he, where he goes into, where he gets cleansed, is the River Jordan. That's significant. It's interesting because the River Jordan is the place where Joshua brought the Israelites through the river after years and years and years of wandering in confusion, not knowing their, their, their right foot from their left, not knowing what's going on. Foolish decisions. And then God says, look, I'm going to deliver you. Come through. They came through and it was like a start of new life for them. This is the place where God is going to heal Naaman. The Jordan River is also the place where John the Baptist would cry out to people, repent, repent and believe, repent and turn from your sins. And where John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The River Jordan is an important picture for us in this story. And it is this picture of baptism, what we're going to see today. It's this picture of repentance to say, uh, I need to be cleansed. I need salvation. I need to get out of this disease. I need this taken away from me. They're not saying, I'm just going to try harder. I'm just going to turn over a new leaf. I'm, I'm going to be morally better. No. Saying, I repent. I turn from my sin. I, I'm saying that I trust in Jesus' crucifixion. That it put death to my sin. It put death to my disease. Jesus died for my sake. Look, I'm not just trying better. I'm not just trying to be a Christian, a morally good person. I'm saying, no, I am going to be Christ's. I'm going to be in Christ. My old self's died. My old self in Adam has died, nailed to the cross, dealt with, and I raised to new life. In Christ, no longer in Adam. This is what we're celebrating today. 
See, when John saw Jesus coming, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's because God had provided a lamb. Now, up until then, there had been many sacrifices, many lambs that took on sin. But this was the Lamb of God that took away sin. Took away sin for once and for all. I said earlier on that it's been everybody's story that they've been born in Adam. I, I was not telling the truth completely. There was one man born of a virgin, not born in Adam. Born clean. A perfect, spotless, righteous lamb. But there's also one man who's ever chosen to become sin. Chosen to take on sin. Why would you do that? Why would you take on sin so I can put an end to it? So it can be killed when the nails go through me. When I breathe my last breath and I say, it's finished. It's done. I have taken sin on. I've taken this disease of Adam on myself and I've put it to death so that anyone who puts their faith in me, anyone who confesses their sin and and believes in me for forgiveness will raise to new life. This is what we're celebrating today. No longer in diseased Adam, raised in righteous Christ. Free Christ, clean and forgiven. So Naaman recognizes there's a chance of help and hope of change makes him turn towards it. So just going to look here at what does repentance look like? What does Naaman's repentance look like? Well, there's something of an encouragement for us in that it starts out very messy. His repentance starts very ugly. He comes, first of all, with a completely wrong idea. Comes with gold and silver and clothing, thinking, oh, I've got to go and buy my healing. I've got to go and bring something that is of worth to get what I need. It's not what happens at all. In fact, at the end, after he's been healed, he says, let me give you a gift. Elisha says, no, I don't want your gift. This is not what it's about, brothers and sisters. We don't come offering, God, look what I can do. Look what I can give you. Salvation is a gift to be received, to be believed, and to be stood in. He comes also arrogant. It says that he comes with his horses and his chariots. It says that for a reason. It's it's making a point that he comes quite impressed with himself. I'm a big deal. And he's thinking more about himself and about the... uh, about Elisha and, and the healing being something that will be a serving to him rather than thinking of his need, rather than being aware, Ugh, I'm, I, I'm, I'm the one who needs help here. I'm not the one who's in control here. Then he comes to the wrong expectations. He says, I thought the prophet would come out to me and would call on his God and like wave his hand over the area and make it work and He would just sort it out. And so many of us, we can behave like this with God. God, I just want you to sort my issue out. I don't want anything to be required of me. I just want you to sort my issue out on my terms. And when God doesn't do it on our terms, we say, oh, well, forget it then. Forget it then. It's so easy to do that. I don't want to have to give up control. I don't want to have to come under your authority. And incredibly, he he starts to turn away. But... God doesn't work like that. He loves us much too much. Now hear this. He loves you much too much to just say, yeah, I'll sort your issue out for you. I'll I'll clean you up on the outside. I'll I'll make you, uh, I'll get you what you want. 
and then you can be on your way. Your way. Why, is, why is God not satisfied with that? Well, that's superficial relationship. He loves you. He wants to know you. He wants you to trust him. He has the best for you. So that when he asks you, look, come under me as your father, he's not saying, because I want to spoil your fun. He's saying, because I want to bring you life. Because in me is life. In me is the hope you're looking for. So come and do as I ask you to do. He doesn't listen properly as well. He thinks Elisha's just said, look, you can come to this water and be washed. Because he says, I could get washed in the waters where I was. They're much better than the waters here. This mucky Israel water, I don't want that. And he's not even listened carefully. Are you willing to listen? Are you willing to listen carefully? This is such an issue today. The world's idea of Christianity is they just want to spoil fun. They just want to take away my freedom. Uh, They just want me to behave myself and they spoil everything. They've just come up with something in their mind, people. They think about Christianity. We just think, I want to to listen. If he listened to hear what was on offer, which we'll talk about just in a second, his friends help him to listen properly, he he wouldn't be saying, "I I can do that myself. No, no, you can't because you didn't listen. He's not offering you just to clean. He's offering you not just the outside, but the inside to be clean. And he has this bad, proud attitude. He was, he's quick to get angry when things aren't done his way. We can often think, God, I, I want to I change this part of me. I don't like this part of my life. This is painful. This is difficult. And we pray. And then God doesn't answer the way we want him to. And we think God didn't answer at all. He's not there. He's not a good God. No, Naaman, listen, you're just getting angry because things aren't done the way you want. And we need to check ourselves and think, wait a second, who's God here? And what's he offering me? Now get this, it's incredible. He intends to leave. He starts to leave. This man who's diseased, who's who's falling to pieces, is losing his life. And he starts to walk away from the offer of new life. Isn't that incredible? He actually says out of pride, lack of faith perhaps, I'm, I'm not doing that. But thank God for good friends, right? Thank God for servants who say to him, hey, you need to listen to what he actually said. Did he just say, come and be cleaned? No. He said, come and get healed. He said something so good. This offer is amazing. Come. Come to the water. Come. Get in the water. His friends encourage him. And good friends share the good news of the gospel. And they share it accurately. Not a watered down version. Not our hope. They could have said, yeah, why don't you just go and, go and dip your foot in there once. See what happens. What's the harm in that? No, they say, go and do the offer. Go and take him up on his word. They urge people, good friends, urge people to respond. Now, I want to talk to to the believers in here and just encourage you in this because this is how we help each other, believers. Martin Luther, at the beginning of the Reformation, in his thesis, one of his first things he said, all of life is repentance. All of life is turning, turn back to God, turn back to God. Because... What's on offer 
is healing for the broken, is peace for the troubled, is love for the lost, is light for those in darkness. Turn back to God. But we don't like to offend people. So people come to us and they say, oh man, I'm really messed up. Or they say something more subtle like, yeah, I really struggle to believe that. And we say stuff like, yeah, me too. Or they say, yeah, I messed up this week. Shouldn't have done something. And we say, yeah, life's tough, isn't it? And then we leave it there. We just say stuff like, yeah, loads of people do that. Don't worry. Don't beat yourself up. Loads of Christians do that. Don't beat yourself up. We say stuff like this. You know what? God loves you as you are. You're beautiful in every single way. Words can't bring you down. Or we say things even more spiritual. Well, well done for recognizing that was wrong. That's really good theology. Well done. I think of the prodigal son, if you know the story in the Bible, where this son has asked his father for his inheritance early, and the father's given it to him graciously, amazingly, but the son goes and squanders it, has nothing left. He ends up in a pigsty, realizing, what on earth am I doing with my life? Maybe if I go back to my father... I'll have a roof over my head, I'll have food, and I'll get a job. And what we do with the things I was just saying there, don't beat yourself up. What if someone came to the prodigal son, he's just turning back, he's just about to run back to his father, and some Christian comes and says, hey, 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 don't beat yourself up, we all do that. No, run! The father's arms, as we sang, are open wide. Run to him. Repent, turn to him. Don't say, oh, it's not a big deal. There's grace. There is grace. Go get it. Go to him. Go and get it. Go and repent. Turn to him. Don't just assume grace. Receive grace. Don't just teach about it and think, oh, yeah, I get grace. I understand it. Who cares? The devil understands grace. Receive it. Run to him. So what does Naaman do? How do we repent? Well, first of all, at last, he humbles himself. He recognizes. No, I need to. I need to do what they've told me to do. That's the equivalent of a confession. No, I, I, I need to get in this water. 1 John 1 says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you confess your sins, he's, this is the problem where people, with good-meaning people, say, don't beat yourself up, don't worry, God loves you. You're actually not believing it. If you believe God loves you, you say, go to him. He's faithful. He'll forgive you. He'll love you. His arms are open wide. Go to him. Let's go to him together. Let's pray together. Let's confess this together. Let's get cleaned. Let's get washed up. Let's stand with our chests out. We know who we stand in. Let's go to God in repentance. Like a child, he humbles himself. We must humble ourselves. Jesus says we must become humble like little children. When he was asked, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He must have laughed to himself at that question and just thought, you don't don't get it. You've got to be humble like a child. You've got to realize your need. And so far in this story, apart from Elisha, the only person that knew what to do was the little girl. The only person that knew, you need to go to the, the one with the power of God. We've got to become like children and realize, ah, oh, I need. 
I need help. I'm going to humble myself, turn to God, stop pretending, stop thinking maybe he'll forget in a few weeks if I just keep my head low. No, I need forgiveness. I need help. Second, he trusts and obeys fully. Trusts and obeys fully. Not just once or twice. He's told to go into the water seven times. And it's interesting. It doesn't really explain why, but I can imagine, if you imagine the scenario, he goes and gets in the water and he comes out after one time and he thinks, nothing happened there. If anything, I look dirtier. He goes down twice, comes out three times. This doesn't work. How many of us do that? Yeah, I, tr- I tried what I tried going to God. Doesn't work. Sixth time he gets out. This is embarrassing. Doesn't work at all. What am I doing? Seventh time, new life. New life because he is fully obeying. He started to try. Okay, I will do what I am asked to do. And maybe you're a Christian and you're saying, I, I, I don't take it that seriously. I'm not like one of those fanatics. But I'm pretty miserable, if I'm honest. How many times you dipped yourself in the water? How seriously are you taking what God's calling you to do? Do you want to find real life, freedom in Christ? Obey him. He wants to walk you away from disease. He wants to walk you away from pain. Trust him. Don't pick and choose what you will trust him for. Trust him fully. I will go and I will do what he's asked me to do. And in him, there is fullness of joy. Next, what happens? He is restored. And I love the phrasing, his skin returns to the, like a skin of a child. What, what is that? It's like new birth, new life. Innocence restored. Go to Jesus in repentance and find innocence restored. Find new life. Find, ah, I'm not ashamed anymore. I don't feel guilt all over me anymore. I don't feel dirty. I feel I went to him and he cleaned me up. As Tom read earlier on, he lifted me out of this miry pit. And he put my feet on a rock. When we do that in Jesus, we find restoration. Like a little child's skin. No longer in diseased Adam. In beautiful Christ. So he is restored, receives new life. Finally, he acknowledges God as the one true God. What does that do to him? He gets this new life. Wow, this is real. This has happened. This is, I felt this love of God. There's no other God like this. That's the response of a, of a repentant heart who receives forgiveness, receives love, receives cleansing. There's no other God like this. There's no one else that could do for me what he does for me. And so Naaman acknowledges and finds God is the one true God. God is the one bringer of life, bringer of hope. And finally, his full completion of repentance looks like something. He pledges his life to the one true God. You'll find as the story goes on, he renounces the other gods. His allegiance changes He actually says to Elisha, look, I'm going to go back to where I live. And my Lord, the person I help, I don't know if he means the king or somebody else, but the person he he helps a man get into their temple to worship their God because this man is frail. And he says, look, when I go in with him, he leans on my shoulder. But I want you to know I'm never bowing to that God again. 
I just want you to absolve me from the fact that I'm even going in that temple. Will you do that? And Elisha says, yes, I will. His allegiance has changed. See, a repentant heart is not a, uh, a heart that just says, I will, uh, I'll, add, I'll add you onto my life. God, will you just forgive me of my sins and, and then let me party? See, what I love about the prodigal son story, the incredible truth of it is that the prodigal son thinks he's leaving home to find party, to find life, to find the feast. He doesn't even realize that, that home is where the feast is. Home is where the party is. The older son, later on in the story, finds out that the father comes in and treats him. This has always been yours. It's available to you all the time. We don't need to go and find, oh, well, I'm finding life, I'm finding... No, it's, it's at home. It's with him. And Naaman has realized, I, I pledge my allegiance to this God. I'm never going to worship another God again. And, and, and as John the Baptist and Jesus, they preach, repent and believe. Repentance is a turning and it's a believing. As we said earlier, as we said, that it, it makes such a difference. Maybe, maybe in your life, you know, I know the Bible says God loves me. I know he says he's adopted me. I really, I really struggle to believe that. There, there can be a, this beautiful gift of repentance where you can say, God, I'm sorry that I haven't believed that. I choose to believe that. I'm going to walk down the road of believing I am your son. I'm your daughter. That's what you say. Who am I to argue with that? Rather than thinking, oh, it's, oh, woe is me. It's really tough. No, I'm going to choose. Perhaps you're somebody who says, I, I, there's some stuff in here that's pretty weird. I don't really believe this stuff. It's the word of God. His word. Perhaps you, somebody you say today, I, I, God, I'm sorry that I do that. I want to turn away from that. I want to repent and believe properly. Believe in a way that will change me from the inside. I want to take on my identity in Jesus. Perhaps it's, 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 it's anger. Perhaps you blow up. That's going to be what I'm going to do right now. When I'm on my own, something doesn't go right. I, I have what Paul calls fit, fits of rage. <laughs> they don't have those. I get very frustrated. And I, and, I, and I was thinking about this yesterday, and I thought, well, I could have repented then. Well, I kind of did. But I want to do that. I want to give an example to you. I want to bring something to God now. That I want to say, God, that, that isn't of you. That is disease-ridden. That's only going to hurt me. I want to lay that at your feet. I want to turn away from it. I want to give that to you. I'd love to encourage you to be active now, to think, what is there in my life that I am saying, no, I want my way, not his way? What is there in my life that I do that I know I need to put a stop to? What is there in my life that I've compromised and I've just thought, well, that's just how it's going to be? And actually today you're thinking, no, that is, that's a disease. I'm choosing something which is hurtful to me and maybe hurtful to those around me. Today I want to put it down. I want to take on the, the joy of what it is to be free in Jesus. To know that I'm no longer in Adam. I'm in Christ and I need to live like it. So just as we sing this song, perhaps we just close our eyes and we do some business with God. Remember, this is victory. This is a gift. This is cleansing. This is new life. Repentance doesn't have to mean groveling. 
one of the most famous passages in the Bible on repentance, Psalm 51. David starts like this, have mercy on me, O God, because he's just had an affair and he's had to murder someone to cover up his affair. And he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to, according to my groveling, no, according to, I'll really try harder, no, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Later on, he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Why don't you bring your heart to God, honestly? Thank you for listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. Please feel free to make a copy of this content, but please do not edit the content in any way.